Hello and welcome back to Non-Exit and Novel Review, episode 13, chapter 12. So this is real college, begins the chapter as Connor Dempsey visits his friends Burke and McNamara at Temple University. My intentions for this chapter were to get Connor down into Center City slash North Philly, illustrate the progress of the city in comparison with Thomas Holm and the chapters about its origin, including the statue of William Penn on top of the city. Uh, this was also the opportunity to move the myth versus reality motif of the novel. Yes, it is real college, but it is not shown as a place of real learning. It is a place of indulgence and potential for dangerous behavior, drinking, fighting, and the chapter concluding with McNamara nearly dying. From the perspective of Connor and his motivation, he's fulfilling a hero's role in a sense. He brings the alcohol fights to defend his friend, gets a girl, and, in a sense, saves his friend's life. As the writer, and likely for readers, there is a tinge of irony in all of it. For Dempsey, everything he is involved in is very meaningful. But from the outside observer's perspective, it is all frivolous behavior. The partying and friends overshadowing any academic pursuits or real purpose in life. Connor Dempsey's first night at college, really, is certainly a memorable one. You can imagine it would be the basis of many stories to come in the future, both for him and his friends. With the non-exited theme, from the intimate perspective of himself and friends, the night was a strange success. It was as wild and as it could possibly have gotten. And although they are scarred, it's not going to be something that they will forget. Inspiration. Well, I did go to Temple. Uh, certain elements about the campus are fairly accurate. Uh, the goal certainly was to have the chapter be a microcosm of the college experience, as in the, the after-school activities. Uh, therefore, I wanted to include elements such as the overdrinking, pursuit of love slash women, fighting slash animalistic behavior, and generally seeing what you can get away with. I wanted to portray Connor as the hero among the group, satisfying the desires of a young man that age. I view this chapter as somewhat of a bridge for events to come later in the story. Essentially, I wanted to show his appeal to his friends. Although he's not the ideal person, he's loyal, charming, and selfless in this chapter. Craft and Structure Two classic songs are referenced in this chapter, Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan, and Almost Cut My Hair by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I do personally love both songs, and they obviously have stuck with me over the years. Tangled Up in Blue, I wanted to illustrate this sensation I had, at least when I was a person McNamara's age. That is being very wrapped up in myself and emotions and diving unnecessarily deep into lyrics of certain songs and trying to make them fit whatever was going on with me. McNamara is lovesick, and sees Dylan slash the narrator of the song as feeling the same thing. Beyond that, it is a long-stretching absence of love that, by the lyrics of the song, seem to span years, locations, and experiences. The song is explained as much by McNamara, but I intentionally depicted him having difficulty articulating it. It is represented, it is represented of a certain element of people at least that age, which is desperately wanting love or 
feeling ready for it, both romantic and love and artistic love. McNamara is also a singer slash guitarist like Dylan of sorts, a person who wants that acceptance and wants to be a person of noble artistic pursuits. It is unrequited love in a way, as Petrarch is mentioned by McNamara. The idea of noble, noble suffering for another person or art form. Almost Cut My Hair is also mentioned. Somewhat obvious in a sense as Burke is consistently depicted with long hair or growing his hair out. The song and Burke represent that need for rebellion, for finally becoming your own person while also needing to clearly show the world that you are not conforming to the expectations of society. It is all very college to me, and in a way illustrates that Connor Dempsey is not part of it. He's not trying to be an earnest singer-songwriter or long-haired hippie. He's stuck in Holmesburg, still with his family, given a glimpse of what it is like in this chapter, on this night, though there is likelihood that he will never um, experience it again. All Connor Dempsey has of college is the actual academics, and he's not doing what he should in that category. The night is a mirage, a good memory and story to tell, but in the end, he is just visiting. Chapter 12 so this is a real college, Dempsey thought to himself cynically as he parked his Reliant around 16th and Cecil B. Moore Avenue and walked toward Burke and McNamara's dorm in Temple University. The blocks off campus were a smattering of collegiate pizza shops and bars, bookstores and tiny neighborhood bodegas, breakfast joints straight from the 1950s, and hole-in-the-wall dive bars that would scare the piss out of anyone not from the city to step into. Cecil B. Moore intersected with Broad Street, which ran straight down to City Hall, the old Gothic and Greco-Roman building with the iron statue of William Penn on top, the Liberty Tower skyscrapers, and other buildings which now shadowed the noble Quaker proprietor with his hand flatly stretched out at his waist. Dempsey had a bottle of Captain Morgan in his backpack, and he was excited to finally be shown around campus and pregame in the dorms, and then party at a house off campus. He stepped onto Temple's campus, and it was suddenly no longer North Philadelphia but the safe refuge for young scholars. Every person was different in their own way, and yet all happy, like walking into Oz, but with a cherry brick road as opposed to a golden one. The college even had its own police force, with officers on bicycles and alert stations every hundred yards or so, even an old cop driving a little golf cart around. The air of the university screamed that the week of studying was over, and even if there was an 8 a.m. class, we would be drinking tonight. Burke and McNamara's dorm was on the corner of Leocorus Walk and Norris. Dempsey was warm, warned that the security would be checking backpacks at the front desk, as drinking in the dorms was prohibited. So Dempsey went out into the alleyway of the west side of the dorm and saw Burke flagging him down from a fourth-floor window. With gesturing akin to Navy SEALs, Burke began to slowly lower a rope from the window to Dempsey. A few people from other floors began to look out of their windows in confusion, and then begin to laugh at this absurd operation. Dempsey double-knotted the rope to the handle of his backpack, saluted Burke, and then Burke hauled up the treasure. We'll call it the umbilical cord, Burke stated after signing Dempsey in, and they walked upstairs. The halls were nearly brand new, brightly lit with white walls and Berber carpet. Burke's floor even had a pool table and vending machines. 
Dempsey was envious that he was not here with them, and with his grades teetering in the C to D range, it would be a long shot to complete nursing school at Temple anyway. The thought passed by the time he reached Burke's dorm, and he thought only of drinking and being with his boys. Burke had a mini-fridge filled with Schmidt's cans, which had beers and salmon on the labels for some reason. Burke's wall was covered with posters of his heroes, the iconic Jim Morrison shirtless, Bob Dylan looking away and holding a bass guitar, and the typical Led Zeppelin stairway to heaven with the old monk on the cliff holding the lantern, and the dark side of the moon poster, the single white light entering the prism and a rainbow shooting out the other end. Burke also had a record player, which was currently spinning Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Dempsey took out a bottle of Captain Morgan and placed it on Burke's desk. Without a word, Burke grabbed Dixie cups from the bathroom, and when McNamara arrived, the three cheers to Pollock and gulped the whiskey down, and then began drinking the Schmitz, or every other letter beer, as Burke called it. I tell you about the other night, Demps? Dempsey shook his head. McNamara wanted to play at this open mic on South Street, and we must have gotten off at the wrong stop or took the wrong train, because we ended up in Northern Liberties or Fishtown, and we were just wandering, freezing cold with McNamara and his guitar on his back, and some bum came up to us. I was pretty drunk at this point, and the guy asks for change. I don't know, I start mouthing off to him, and he pulls out a damn wrench, like a mechanic's wrench, and starts swinging it at me. Holy shit, we ran so fast and hopped on the first septibus we saw, and it took us to Chinatown. McNamara missed his open mic, but this place had bang and low main, and they let us drink there. We split a carafe of sake, and I puked it all up a minute later in the street. Oh, man. So we grabbed a cab home, and we both didn't have any money, so we bolted out as soon as the cabbie pulled over. Dude was screaming at us all the way down Broad Street. They all laughed, and McNamara continued, You gotta see me during an open mic. I've been writing all my new stuff. I've really got down how to sing and play at the same time. I even play harmonica when I'm playing guitar on a few songs. He's good, man. You gotta come. Plus, the owner is a retired narc, and he doesn't care if we drink underage. Burke really got me into Bob Dylan. He's such a genius. I never liked him before, but then I heard Tangled Up in Blue, and it all clicked for me. Some of the songs I really get, you know. Anyway, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. Want to join? I got to get a shower. Some of the girls from the East Wing will be coming over in a little bit, Burke said, and Art already made his way to the bathroom. I'll have one, Dempsey said, and followed McNamara into the courtyard. Dempsey was not a smoker, but he liked the extra rush of a cigarette when drinking. That song tangled up in blue, man, McNamara reflected after exhaling. He now wore a suede blazer with leather patches at the elbows and his hair was now grown over his ears. I really relate to that song. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the whole song is talking about a girl who's just out of his reach. Her folks, they said, our lives together sure was going to be rough. They never did like Mama's homemade dress. Papa's bank book wasn't big enough. We'll meet again someday on the avenue. I've seen a lot of women, but she never escaped my mind, and I just grew, tangled up in blue. That's like me, man. I feel like what he's saying there. I met a girl a few weeks ago, right here on Leah Corris Walk. Burke and I were drunk, causing all hell, and Burke said something stupid to her. I don't even remember what. And then he rolled back into the dorms. I apologized for him, and I started talking to her. I admit, I was just trying to get with her at first, but she was like so sweet and patient. Such a cute, tiny voice, and these eyes like a Disney princess or something. Ah, man, I don't know. She lives in the dorm right over there. She says she's a boyfriend back home in Lansdale. But I don't know. Sometimes they're together, sometimes they're not. I just feel like the guy in the song. I know she's not meant for me, but it's just not happening. And then the song, he says, 
Then she opened up a book of poems and handed it to me, written by an Italian Italian poet from the 13th century, and every one of them words rang true and glowed like a burning coal, pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul from me to you. That's Petrarch he's talking about, I'm pretty sure. Unrequited love, the doe in the woods and the hunter. I don't know what to do. It'll work out. She'll come around. Dempsey inhaled the last bit of cigarette and then flicked it out of the courtyard and walked with McNamara back inside. Burke was just stepping out of the shower when they returned and proudly swung his long, wet hair back and forth and then dressed. A moment later, the girls from the East Wing entered with a box of Franzia wine. Dempsey was amazed by how easy it all was to live in a building with girls who just come into your room and drink with you. If he attempted to bring a girl home, he would have to tiptoe with her through the basement and lightly up the stairs to his room and pray his mom and dad wouldn't hear the bed creak or her moan. One of the girls was Samantha, who went to Nazareth Academy in the Northeast, and he didn't know prior. Burke described her as quiet when sober, but a wild woman after a few beers or wine. She had a firm body with large breasts and a round ass that jiggled when she swayed to almost cut my hair. Burke said they made out at a frat party a few weeks ago, but things had not progressed beyond that. She seemed to be a little buzzed already and slurred slightly when she explained the girls had two shots in their dorm prior to arriving. Samantha's friend and roommate was Laura, a slightly plump girl from Reading. She wasn't as brazen as Samantha and was timidly sitting on Burke's, red, Burke's bed nursing a cup of wine. She had thick square glasses and wore a Led Zeppelin shirt of the Swan Song logo and a pair of jeans with rips in the knees. Her hair was brown with a few streaks of blonde, the remnants of an old highlighting job. She was in the Tyler College of Art and was said to draw tremendous charcoal sketches of horses. She even had one back home named Gus. The third girl from the East Wing was Jocelyn. She was short and petite, just under five feet tall, and had short blonde hair, nearly buzzed on the sides. She was from Moorestown, New Jersey, and she was going to school for accounting. Jocelyn had these sharp eyes that revealed an ever-present intelligence, not just seeing, but processing and analyzing constantly. She was looking at Samantha as if looking for some pattern in her movement. The swaying of Samantha's hips and the way she clutched her wine cup as some deeper repression being subtly revealed and becoming more obvious with each sip of alcohol she took. Dempsey saw this predator, this hunter and Jocelyn, and needed to find out more. He sat beside her and filled her cup with more wine. Nothing but the best here, he remarked. I'm a classy gal. When I drink wine from a box, it needs to be Franzia. I'm the same way with my beer. If it doesn't have a wild animal on the can, then I'm out. Here's to like mines, and they cheersed. So you're not afraid of needles? What's that? You're going to be a nurse, right? Oh, yeah. I haven't had to do anything like that yet. Just really learned CPR so far. But I'll be okay. You need to hurt someone to help someone. It's funny how that works. That's true. I feel it only hurts if someone looks at it, though. If they look away, it's really not that bad. Just a little pinch. So that's what you recommend, looking away? Yeah, it always hurts when you see it coming. Yo, so let's head over to the party at 16th and Norris in about an hour, Burke interrupted. It's some of the boys from my intellectual heritage class, and then directed them over to his desk to take a shot of Captain Morgan. Dempsey went to the fridge and grabbed another Schmitz. McNamara was there to meet him. You're always pretty good with girls, man. What do you think I should do? Should I call her to see if she wants to go to this party? If you want, it's worth a shot. Okay. Nah, I mean, maybe she'll be there or I'll see her out. It'll be much better that way. How so? It'll be meant to be. That's how it has to go. That's destiny and everything. 
Whatever you think. Oh man, this sucks. Last Sunday, I could not go to sleep at all. My mind was racing and I was dead sober. I kept thinking about her and how unfair it was that she had a boyfriend. And that dude probably treats her like shit. The thoughts just kept coming. So then, I really just started to shut my eyes and they were just closed. But I could still see out. And I swear to God, man, I saw ghosts hovering over me and waving their hands in my face like seeing if I was awake. So I would open my eyes more and they vanished. Then I closed my eyes again and same thing. The ghosts reappeared with their hands in my face and they had like long dreadlocks and were young. And then my eyes were fully opened and everything really started to rush in. A deluge of thoughts about my own death and what will happen when I die and what comes after that if there even is a heaven. Do we just stay there forever? And why does she have a boyfriend? And I could feel my heart pressing against my chest and then I just heard a voice saying, give it time. Give it time? Yeah, give it time, and that's what I've been thinking. Just have patience, and it will work. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. Ah, man, McNamara with the ghost sightings, Burke interjected. I couldn't believe it myself. I still can't believe it, but it happened. I don't really know what else to say. Like, maybe that's how it happens. No one believes until the unbelievable happens. I need a cigarette. And he stepped to the window to smoke, and Burke joined him. Connor continued to talk to Jocelyn and felt he was flirting fairly well. She would not be easy, and she reveled in challenging him as far as he could tell. He was feeling good and confident. His blonde, curly hair and blue eyes were irresistible. He was going to be a nurse. He cared for people. He was witty and could match her volleys. He could look at her and not reveal fully his captivation with her delicate eyes and small freckles that diffused from the corners of her eyes down her soft cheeks and even a stray freckle making its way all the way down her full, rubicund lips. He wanted to touch her. He wanted to tell her some truth, but it was much too early in the game. He had to be cool, unaffected, and subtly inch closer, make a tiny innuendo, and... What are you looking at? Hey, yeah, keep walking down, you fucking pussy. Yeah, wait, what's that? Burke was yelling down from the window. Asshole, stay down there, McNamara continued. Dempsey joined them at the window to see the group of a few guys they were yelling at. They were all wearing jeans and golf shirts, most likely on their way to a party. One of the guys halted his friends and lifted his middle finger right at Burke. Fuck it, let's go down, Burke said as he finished the rest of his beer and made his way downstairs. Dempsey and McNamara following. The four were waiting for them at the corner of Leocorus Walk and Norris, next to a closed food truck. The supposed leader wore a green-striped golf shirt and confidently stepped forward. You should find better things to do than yell at people from your window. Smoking is bad for you. Real tough guy, I'm sure. Come on, man, one-on-one, Burke implored and put up his fists. The other three boys and Dempsey and McNamara stepped away to give the two space. Like a banshee, Burke lunged at Green Golfshirt, who seemed pretty built and didn't make contact. Green Golfshirt ducked out of the way and connected on the side of Burke's head. This made Burke more angry and he dove at Green Golf Shirt and swung with both fists. One punch hit him on the shoulder, but Green Golf Shirt now had hold of Burke's sweatshirt, pinched Burke three consecutive times in the face, Burke's hair flinging backwards on impact. The fucking hippie can't fight, a kid in the blue golf shirt exclaimed. At this, Dempsey charged him and tackled him to the ground while punching. Blue Golf Shirt now on the ground, trying to get free, but Dempsey swinging downward furiously, landing punch after punch. A blur of rage, Dempsey kept swinging until he was also tackled, and his face slammed into a sewer grate, and a moment later a knee in his back and his hands being twisted backwards, and the cold metal on his cuff. 
cold metal cuffs on his wrist. As he was pulled up, he tasted the blood in his mouth, dripping from a gash above his lips. He looked down to see blood on the metal grate, drizzling down into the darkness, and a puddle of dark red on his sweatshirt. A moment later, he was placed inside the police car and taken to Temple Hospital. The fluorescent light burned on his skin as he sat in the waiting room of the hospital with the police officer sitting next to him. He wondered what had happened to Burke and McNamara. Had they been arrested? Did they get away? The officer didn't say a word to him, just speaking in code into his walkie-talkie. It was stupid, and his lip was busted badly, but he had to do it. Something in him took over, and he was all beast. He was fighting for his clan, his brotherhood. No one could beat his friend or say his friend was a pussy. It didn't matter the pain he felt now, what the repercussion would be. He had to do it for Burke. He would have done it for him. When it was time, the nurse washed the blood off of his face with a cloth, swabbed his skin numb, and injected a needle in the skin above his upper lip several times until he felt nothing, and sewed his wound shut with seven stitches. The officer drove him back to the dorm and issued him a citation for disorderly conduct. Burke met him at the security to sign him back in and just said, Jesus Christ, as he saw Dempsey with his blood-stained sweatshirt and thick black stitches above his mouth. What a first night at Temple, eh? Burke said and laughed as he whomped Dempsey on the back. Burke somehow had no marks on him. I don't think they'll let me step foot on campus again. Hey, they will, man. They need an RN with some first-hand experience. I guess I can confidently say what stitches feel like now. Exactly. Hey, the girls are back in the dorm and we still have a bunch of beer. You've earned every drop, my friend. Thanks. When Connor returned to the dorm, he saw McNamara sitting at the desk in the corner with a cup of wine and the bottle of Captain Morgan. About one-third of the rum remained, and McNamara was bragging that he had been drinking it straight from the bottle with no chaser. He was more at ease than earlier in the night, but he did not appear to be wasted quite yet. Dempsey, after the fight, arrest, and hospital visit, was feeling completely sober by now. Burke informed him that the group still went to the party, but the police came shortly after and forced everyone out. As Dempsey entered, Samantha, Lara, and Jocelyn each took their turn in viewing the stitches on his face, holding his chin and turning his head as if he was some work of art and asking him, how long will you have to have the stitches and will it scar? And Dempsey, not sure if they examined him in pity or curiosity or if the act and consequential evidence made him more attractive in their minds. Either way, he had resolved in his mind to sleep with one of them as some type of twisted recompense for a disastrous start to the evening. Burke and the girls grew bored, so they went to the local dive bar Lamar's, where they knew they wouldn't get carded. McNamara stayed behind as he said he was getting tired. Lamar's was like a preserved 1970s joint, with one box TV in the corner behind the bar, old pool tab cans lining the walls, a dilapidated pool table with a strip of felt worn away, and only two other middle-aged black men slumped over their beers. With all of that drabness, it was still an exhilarating feeling to be drinking in a bar. The group took a round of Southern Comfort shots, and Burke put on a few songs on the jukebox. The girls began dancing, and Dempsey indiscriminately danced with all three. Jocelyn grinded onto him and reached her hand back and held his thigh. He moved his hands along her hips and up toward her chest. In a flash, he turned her around and kissed her. She had played the cold, cunning intellectual earlier, but that veil was now lifted. She saw him as animal, as this wild force pulsating on instinct and not even caring about his own preservation. Brave or stupid, but attractive nonetheless. They kissed hard and sloppily in this dive bar until she said, I'm going to the restroom, and he let her go for a minute and then went in and joined her, his stitches nearly ripped out by the time it was all over. 
When Burke and Dempsey returned to the dorm, McNamara was pressed out on, passed out on the bed, still fully clothed, clothed with his sneakers on. As Dempsey went over to take McNamara's sneakers off, he noticed McNamara was not breathing. Panicked, Dempsey began to perform CPR on his friend, trying his best to remember every procedure learned. After a few intervals, McNamara came to and started talking gibberish. Relieved, Dempsey and Burke slowly stood him up and took him to the bathroom. While there, they forced McNamara, who was completely incapacitated, to throw up into the toilet. That brought McNamara to better cognizance, so they took his clothes off and put him in the shower to help sober him up. When he was done in the shower, Dempsey put sweats on him and laid him back into the bed. McNamara, with his eyes closed, softly repeated, Give it time, until he fell back asleep, and Dempsey soon followed. That concludes episode 13. Thank you for listening and all of your support. Be sure to follow on social media and check for updates. Also check Amazon for reading options for this novel and other novels to come. Until next time.